right, we are recording. We are back. Let's do it. We're actually back. We're recording. Yeah. Is that happening now? Okay, it's cool. It's red. The is light's that, red. Is that, is that what that means? Yeah, the flashing red light means it's armed and ready, and the solid red light means it's it's recording. Oh, shouldn't it be a green light? No. Nope. Didn't have the money for the green light. Yeah, okay. Uh, Cost extra. Okay. <laughs> cool. The dead in a tavern there. I buy pistol And I heard the miners talking about a new world that was coming. And I believe I see that new world coming today. It's a boy, you listen closely. There's a secret. Okay, comrades, we are back. This is Critical Support, your source for conditional, heavily caveated, completely correct takes on basically anything. Um, mostly politics, but basically anything. Uh, whatever it is, we have the correct perspective on it, or we will after uh, talking about it for a minute or two. Um, so here's the format. We have all chosen a subject, something to which our critical support might be extended, a political figure, a concept, a current event, whatever. We've not told each other in advance, so one at a time, we will debate each subject until it is exhausted, and we've determined the degree of our critical support. Uh, just a quick note about us. We are all activists, organizers, working class people. We live in Seattle. So I'm Jacob. I'm Teresa slash Jenny. <laughs> I'm Jay Inslee. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Preston. <laughs> That's <laughs> my name. I, I, what am I supposed to do? People laugh every time I say it. I don't like, really understand. It's my name. <laughs> okay, and I have the first topic of the day, and it is critical support for that uh, bougie minimalist interior decoration aesthetic that's like air plants and reclaimed lumber and a lot of white paint. Ooh. Like like slate coffee, basically. Okay, or yeah. Like, um, like the Swedish design kind of vibe. Is like it Swedish? I, is I that think, what that is? I think my friend has described it that way. And okay. she, she's definitely into like bougie interior design. Right. Uh, where it's like very solid colors, not like at best you get like a pale blue and that's about the right. most color you have. Everything. Concrete, exposed concrete. It's, exposed or wood. wood. You know, yeah, a lot wood. of it, it, it's basically the rich family's house in Parasite. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that house. Okay. Okay, wow. So the basic dilemma here and why I brought it up is I really like that architectural style. Mm, Just like okay. I like that like boxy neo-brutalist like townhome thing that people do uh, and dunk on. Um, I hate all the other people who implement this <laughs> and go to the coffee shops that I may have visited earlier today. Um <laughs> And so I feel very conflicted because I this see. is like, this is the aesthetic that accompanies gentrification, but simultaneously I've consciously made my apartment look as much like that as I can get it. Um, ah, so yeah. What man, do you all, man, what do you contradictions. all Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm with you. I actually do like that design aesthetic. I don't want like a hundred percent of my buildings to be that way. Right. Like right. I don't want to be in some like weird Jetson Z thing where like everyone's house looks that way. 
or dystopian. But like it's you know I think it's a really clean look. Yeah. Really emphasizes the outside world. You know it's like windows right. to like the outside. Permeable. Like yeah, like it's like this is a thing which is like shelter, but also like you're still connected to everyone. It's not. It doesn't feel like a bunker. It's not like Kane Hall, which feels like a freaking military bunker every time you walk inside there. And that's uh, yeah. Kane Hall at UW. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's some weird... There, there's some, like, odd... There is really good brutalist architecture on the UW campus, and there is, like, not as good. Right. Like, Gould Hall is actually pretty... Which one is Gould Hall? That's the architecture building. Uh, no, that's the um, urban planning building. Um, okay. It's... Which uh, you would know. It's on... <laughs> I'm staring at Jacob. Okay. Um, no, it's on uh, 40th or yeah, 40th and 15th. So um, it's the major. Okay. It's a major intersection cool. there. Um, if you go, are going, to, if you're just going through UW, you pass it. 40th and 15th. Okay. Um, but the nice thing is, like, it's brutalist on the outside. It's all big and concrete yeah. and stuff. But like, you walk inside and there's like windows. Um, right. There's wood, like wood panel floor. You know, like it's meant to be. It's not uh-huh. meant to be like just like this is concrete. Damn it! Like it's. There's more. Yeah, I guess what I was thinking of was those dorms on, like, the opposite side of campus. Oh, okay. That's got all oh, these, the like... The ones that look, like, Soviet-style... <laughs> yeah. Like, exactly. Soviet dormitories. Yeah. It's got, like, that facade that's, like, 100% giant concrete balconies. Yes. I, I love that so much. It's sick, honestly. Yeah, it looks really cool. All right, here's food for thought. I think, uh, hot take here. Okay, everyone look out. Uh-huh. Okay, put your put your oven mitts on. Uh, in a capitalist society, all architecture is bourgeois, completely bougie, because poor people don't get current architecture trends. Working class people don't get current architecture trends. You get old shit, mm-hmm. or just really cheap, crappy stuff that's mm-hmm. like a knockoff of whatever's new. But generally, it's like if you're lower on the totem pole, you get whatever's old and been sitting there for a while. So old brick buildings, old houses, stuff that's out of the, the current fashion. So no matter what it is, any current trend in architecture is gonna be uh, is gonna be bougie because those are the those are the only people who get to enjoy it while it's hot. I think it's fine to like it because it's like it's it's like appreciating like painting or theater. Because frankly they're 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 really made for rich people, but if you get the chance to see it or enjoy it sometimes, I think it's great. I would say that that's true in the US. There are definitely, like, exceptions to that rule. Mm. Obviously in Europe, like, with uh, Red Vienna and, like, the public housing they have in, like, um, you know, Scandinavian countries and and whatnot, that's, like, really amazing. But, yeah, as a general principle, like, public housing in the U.S. tends to be very, like, stock kind of 70s style, mass-produced aesthetic and other than that like if you're not especially in major cities if you are you know a working class person your place is probably going to be either run down or like pretty cheap quality or both well but like the question is if if i enjoy and have a preference for this very uh sort of stark minimalist interior design and if that is associated purely with gentrification and with like a high income level, and it's like it's the way um, a certain type of person that like, do I like it because I just like it, or do I like it because I'm associating it with wealth? Ooh, that's difficult. Can I jump in again? Yeah. Um. So we have friends that 
Um, Whoa, you have friends? Yeah. That have... <laughs> what? <laughs> How did I not know about this? <laughs> right, okay. These yeah. friends, yes. who are working class friends, Yeah. Okay. who have that type of like interior design in their, yes. in their space, and it looks great. Yeah, it looks great, but does it look great because it makes them look wealthy? Is that is that fundamentally what's going on in all of our brains, and is that something we should reject? I think it looks great because it's like clean minimal minimalism. But why do we like clean minimalism? Well, but I think okay. like you can't. That's like anything. Like you're trying to get into anything and why people like it. It's like because it's relaxing to not have clutter. Well, yeah, because poor people have clutter. Well, well, I. I True, but like, we, we should try to engage this question like on face and I think there's nothing wrong with wanting The idea that just because something is associated with wealth We're not allowed to like it like that. I don't think that's true. Remember nothing's too good for the working class, right? And you know, we want bread and roses too like there's no sense in having a world where we house everyone and like we we know the world can provide more than just like a, a, a bare minimum shack over everyone's head, right? Like we are you kidding me? Okay, great um, so, you can have bread and minimalism, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, I don't think uh, the Soviet subway system in Moscow, like, it's, it's famous for having metro stops that are, like, decked out. Like, they look like palace entryways, like the, the metro in Moscow. You know, there might be a whole lot around why, but, like, the, the sort of thrust of that was, well, working people deserve nice things. Working people deserve to have, like, their everyday experience be something that looks grand, that looks, is worth doing. It's something everyone should have access to, right? Like, you know, the whole point is that, you know, we want to resolve the contradiction between the working class and the ruling class, but that would mean that nothing, you know, once that resolution is done, there's nothing that would be a, quote, bourgeois aesthetic. All these aesthetics would just be things we could enjoy. And obviously, like, it would evolve because history would move on and taste that we like would change but like i don't think there's any reason to dislike an aesthetic just because it's associated with wealth although i do take on board the criticisms that gabe put on as well no that wasn't i, I wasn't trying to criticize and say that I, what I, the point that i was trying to make was that it doesn't matter what your personal aesthetic tastes are because anything that's new is always going to be extremely associated with bourgeois right. taste in in 50 years all these like new minimalist boxy buildings that's going to be where they're going to be falling apart that's going to be where working class people live and they're right. it's not yeah. going to be bougie anymore you know it's kind of i mean you're assuming about. the world's still going to exist in 50 years yeah. and like when, and organized civilization will still be around <laughs> which is debatable right we but can talk about that if time. current <laughs> if current trends continue <laughs> if current trends trends continue we might also be fucked by that that's true <laughs> so. right okay right we, we will have the mad max aesthetic that will be the <laughs> that will be the aesthetic this aesthetic is totally present in mad max by the way oh yeah if you go into the uh, uh the room where like the um where all his wives are it's totally like that it's yeah. like filled with light and perfect and there's like no junk and versus everywhere else which is like completely like cluttered and filled in and like every little space and yeah, mm. dystopian and horrifying as, as usual, right? Right. Mm. Going back to um, Parasite, mm -hmm. the, the basement that the working class family lives in. Spoilers, spoilers. No, Wait. that's not a spoiler. Like, it's just filled with their house. Oh, you mean their house? 
Not the basement of the house. I mean, sorry, yeah, but they have like a below ground apartment, basically. Yes. It's like a basement Which is level. Wild. Like, it's 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 like that's one of the the more like uh, powerfully symbolic aspects of the film is like that their little insanely cluttered apartment versus this giant mansion. Mm-hmm. Right. But they're like weird, like funhouse mirror versions of each other too. Like you know, they have a window to the outside world. In one, it's the outside world is this beautiful lawn and, mm-hmm. and this kid setting up his little teepee and the other it's someone peeing like, just <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. And I just love how they do comedy around that. It's like, ah, it's pissing again. <laughs> Throw the bucket of water. <laughs> Critical support uh, for peeing outside? <laughs> uh, we'll come back to that. If you want to raise that topic later, we can we can discuss that in an organized way. I think it's somewhat undisciplined of you, Tressa, to just be throwing out these topics. That... Just pissing everywhere with your goddamn pissing topic. Anyways, okay. So I I I think that we might have exhausted this as far as it's going to go. Yeah, yeah. Their critical support for. Uh, how did I formulate it? Um, a bougie minimalist interior dec- uh, decoration. Yeah, is there, is there a general agreement around yeah. that? I'll critically support it. Yeah, support. I think okay. We, we have decided critical support for a bougie minimalist interior decor. Uh, decorate your space accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Next on the docket, uh, critical support for professional sports unions. Ooh. Yes. So as you know, in the United States, we have uh, you know four major sports um, as well as several others. Um, and Wait, what are the four? Uh, the four would be uh, Major League Baseball, MLB, uh, National Basketball Association, the NBA, uh, the NHL, National Hockey League, and of course the NFL, the National Football League. Wait, why does hockey get to be one of them? Uh, because it's enormous in Canada and in North America. Um, Is so hockey re- really bigger than like tennis? Or soccer? Uh, yes. Or soccer? Decidedly, yes. Really? Enormous. It's only because in Seattle we don't have a team that we don't have the consciousness of... Like, hockey's like enormous. Americans in general. Yeah, it, it's I mean, definitely... Maybe, maybe I'm being myopic here. But it, depends, it depends. I think of hockey as a second-tier sport. Mm. Well, the terminology is usually big four. Teams. And on the East Coast, it's enormous. Oh, okay. Yeah, like... Um, I, I would say on the... If, if we're talking about team sports, then yeah. Like... Because you can't really compare tennis to, like, football in, this, in that regard. Right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The term commonly in sports media is the big four. Okay. Um, and NHL is included in that. Okay. Um, but also, you know, the there's the burgeoning second-tier league, uh, or second-tier of sort of group team sports, uh, MLS, Major League Soccer. Um, they're going through a C- uh, contract uh, bargaining uh, uh uh, uh, so the, ter- the, the contracts are usually called CBAs, Collective Bargaining Agreements. So they're going through their CBA negotiation right now. MLSs? Yeah, soccer. Major League Soccer. In order to unionize the teams? No, the teams are already... So the, so the way that um, professional sports teams are usually structured, they're structured in an industrial way. So in other words, like everyone who is a professional who plays in the league is within the same union. So it's not like... Uh-huh. It's not like one like union. The locals aren't specific to the teams. Exactly. Well, each each um, the the way they're organized is by team. Like each team elects a a representative, basically to to the so they're like the player representative. Not usually the Shots best player. 
they're not like a captain. It's more like, yeah, the shop steward, shop steward equivalent. Okay. Yeah. Um, but in terms of how they bargain, it's across the entire league. And so, yeah, in MLS, they're going through a negotiation right now. Um, in Major League Baseball, there's been a lot of uproar around the various issues there. So I'm putting forward critical support for professional sports unions because, you know, stereotypically in media, we're made to think, oh, these are rich people who, you know, Michael Jordan's, you know, these... You know, these giants of the world, you know, giants, LeBron James, you know, these sports giants of the world, they sign all these, you know, shoe deals, they get pretty much anything they want, you know, the stereotypical, uh, you know, NFL players like, you know, Russell Wilson or Aaron Rodgers, you know, these like name, you know, household brand names. And so that's the stereotype of a lot of professional, you know, people think about professional sports being multimillionaires, people who can, who probably like own capital, right? But they don't think often about the majority of players who are, you know, they're not working class in the sense that, you know, they're not, they're making usually like five, six figure contracts, but it also varies very widely across these unions. The Major, major League Baseball is actually historically the strongest union among all professional sports unions. Um, they have a minimum salary of $500,000. You only have to play like 30 days and you get a lifetime pension, you know, and obviously your pension increases over time um, with your service time. But And that's actually a real credit to um, the industrial organizing that they were doing throughout the 60s and the 70s to really drive up uh, major leaguers' pay. You don't see, uh, they don't get tested for recreational drugs for the most part. In the MLB? In M MLB. Because yeah. they do another. Yeah, yeah. You can smoke weed in MLB. You can't smoke weed in the NFL. So I think we should critically support professional sports unions. I think we see a lot of the, you know, just as we see in most unions, we do see that professionalization or, you know, that um, uh, that bureaucratization. Uh, we've seen union those unions retreat. So they're not like golden examples of labor organizing. Uh, and also the fact that they are making considerably most or many players are making considerably more money than most working class people makes them sort of a set apart interesting case but i think fundamentally they are organizing against billionaires you know billionaire team owners and uh and they organize in an industrial fashion they organize in a very visible way um that people can be inspired by if you know properly politically motivated historically also players going on strike is a difficult issue because you know you're taking away this entertainment from fans, which is a very working class thing, this you know, working class entertainment that people enjoy. So players going on strike, it's a difficult issue. Um, they still haven't quite figured out how to have like a strike that unites players and fans, you know, work all working class people, uh, which is another reason why, you know, it's not full-throated support, it's more of a critical support. Right. They'd have to find some way to have a strike where they still play, but they don't charge for tickets or something. Like yeah, that. it would be something... Which would be very difficult. It would be very hard because, you know, so much of the capital, you know... So well, because like, the players don't control the, um, the stadium apparatus. The stadium, the team yeah. playing... The TV the, revenue. TV revenue, yeah, yeah, like who would watch it, right? Like, right. So, uh, so that would be cool, but that would require a lot. You basically, yeah. So I'm just yeah. putting it out there, you know... I, I'm maybe the token sports person of this group, but maybe you guys have thoughts on. I'm not sure that's true. But. Uh, you know, on other sports that you guys watch. So, what do you guys think? And maybe compare it to like tennis, where there there is no such union, or you know, there there is no. It's a very individualized thing. You know, you play for prize right. money or things. So. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would be strongly in favor of extending semi-critical support. That's a weird way of phrasing it. Um, you, you would extend critical support. I would extend critical support, um, but yeah, I absolutely think that there should be strong unions for 
uh, professional athletes. Yes, there are many cases in which professional athletes make a tremendous amount of money. Uh, particularly in football, it's not generally, unless you're a quarterback, it's not generally over that many years though. And you are putting your body under incredible stress and long potential long-term damage, specifically in football, but in other sports as well. Any sport where you can get can, can get a concussion. It's got to be similar in hockey. Exactly. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, your your career is usually over by the time you're in your mid thirties, and you might be facing like a lifetime, the rest of your life, and you know, with serious potentially debilitating. Uh, ailments because of the the stress you put your body under and furthermore like I don't know you just think about somebody like Colin Kaepernick if there were stronger like more if the union were stronger and more tight-knit like you could potentially have a, a better sort of solidaristic response from other players that that supported him he does have pretty wide support within his peers and I don't know I, yeah, I, I think it's really important. I would I would say that sports at all levels should be more unionized. I think um, college sports should be unionized. Um, so yeah, I, I would definitely extend my critical support. Gabe, what do you think? Oh yeah, well wasn't there some controversy where like the like Yankees or some other teams were like crossing hotel picket lines? Yeah. Recently, mm -hmm. and I, I just sort of think it's stuff like that, and it's I think it's a shame. But at the same time, I mean, I think, like, everyone should be unionized. So I just think, I mean, critical support, I think they could do better. <laughs> they could do better. It's like, I think, Colin As Kaepernick. Most and, people. Exactly. And it's not like they're the only union that has problems. The only organization <laughs> that has problems. Like, <laughs> right. Like, every, every group does. And I mean, like... I think in one sense, they definitely getting such high salaries is like an example of like, we're making so much fucking money for these people. We deserve, you know, to get to get a, our fair share. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's like the that's that's the kind of thing that we should be fighting for. You know, it's like, you know, just just the fact that people make so much money off of off of people's blood, sweat and tears that, you know, that needs to be shared out. To the greatest extent possible. Yeah, cri cri I mean, critical support definitely. You know, mm. acknowledging acknowledging all the problems that are that are there and right. you know problems with with all unions right. or with many at least. I think like there's one thing that like you know, obviously we're mostly in favor of unionizing against the bosses, and I think if we were solely on that basis, it would be not even critical. It would be uncritical support. I do want to point out like I'm most familiar with um, MLB labor just because I follow baseball more closely. And the, you're the weirdo. Yeah, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but, I, baseball. <laughs> yeah. but like they also have the most storied labor history, so it's interesting to think about. There's two things in there where where like it's not as clear cut as it could be. The first is that major league baseball often treats minor league baseball players as basically strike breakers. They basically mm. think they're scabs, they basically don't like them. Like they like having kids come up and join the union. But, like, they don't, they generally, like, they are separately organized entirely. Major League Baseball, the Major League Baseball Players Association is different from the Minor League Baseball Players Association. Those are separate orgs. Um, which leads to this weird thing where, like, those kid, you know, the Minor League players are getting paid dirt. 
basically. Like, if you haven't been to the majors at all, you, you don't even break minimum wage. You don't even break the federal minimum wage often um, in terms of how, how well you're paid. But, like, a big reason is Major League Baseball isn't interested. You know, the Major League Players Association has been uninterested in organizing them. I think that's a, that's a huge mm. problem. Uh, in terms of like solidarity, it's a very like business union. Solidarity. I mean, that just sounds like that just sounds like every other union in all these other places. Like you'll be in like like a, a university mm-hmm. will have like seven different unions on the campus, and some staff aren't in the union, and some staff are getting paid hundreds of thousands, and they're in a union, and others are getting paid minimum wage mm-hmm. because they're in a different union. And it like while I think it's good to be aware of those and critique those, that one. It, that doesn't change my like overall opinion, of that. right? You know, because it just it's like that's how it works in so many cases, right. you know, in in our society. It's it's unfortunate the way it is, but that doesn't seem any different than any large institution or chain, or even the branch of government. You know, like that has a union. They're all kind of like that, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and another wrinkle is the lack of public interest bargain bargaining. Like they're not bargaining for lower ticket prices, which might be one way. That would be cool. That would be I'm awesome. Down that. I'm down. <laughs> like I, I don't think I'll ever go to a, a Seahawks game at least because it's like you can't get a ticket for less than a hundred bucks, even in the nosebleed section. You know, it's yeah. insane. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, I, I feel like it's kind of an open and shut deal. Um, should. X group of workers be able to unionize. Um, I don't know. Are they cops? If no, then <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm. I mean, I'm kind of a hater, and I don't like sports. Um, and I, I generally don't like sports players. I think they're generally assholes who make way too much money relative to what they produce for our society. Um, but the one group of people that I hate more than. Uh, uh, players in these sports are the owners of these teams, so yeah, fuck them. And I'm sure they hate the union, uh, that the fact that their players get to unionize. So yeah, critical sport. All right, that I seems think like a consensus. Yeah, yeah consensus around critical yeah. support. Okay, I mean, way to propose like unionization. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just wanted to you know dive into the the wrinkles and just how you I just wanted to talk about baseball. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> this is a test. Are we really? Leftists or not, do you support union? <laughs> Critical support for unions. Oh, Shit. Uh, yeah, are um, we the anti-union leftists? Uh, they yeah. exist. They exist. Well, but they don't think they exist. That's true. Like they don't like like World Ooh, Socialist website. Yeah, um, they they don't think they're anti-union. They just think that they are being as critical as they should be of the union bureaucracy, which is not true. They are wildly disproportionate. But um. Anyways, we can discuss uh, the Socialist Equality Party at a different time. Um, <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't do critical support for individual left orgs. <laughs> like, I just that, think that's, that's taking us down a path that's... Yeah. that's We're going to yeet that one out of here. Yeah, yeah. We can, yeah, we can do that, and then we can Unless never leave our own together. <laughs> we can never organize. Let the bosses curse. Okay, uh... Let the papers cry. Without getting into too extended a, a sort of rationale for it, 
It is, it is a very, hmm, how should we say, uh, sort of antiquated term, I feel. It sounds kind of anachronistic. It sounds kind of jargony. And yet, I can't really think of an alternative term for it. A way of sort of getting at what we mean when we use the term. But yeah, I just, it, I sort of bristle every time someone in, with a straight face uses the term. Are you dividing this concept out from the idea of Marxism as a science? Like, are, are you seeing those two different things or is this one phenomenon that you're talking I, about? I, I guess it's, it's distinct for me because Marxism as a science, that is, I feel like when people invoke that, they're talking about it um, in terms of, more on Marxist terms and why it was, he spoke in that regard, whereas there's this kind of knee-jerk way that socialists talk about scientific socialism. Do you I mean suppose. scientific as opposed to utopian? Um, or are you talking about it differently? Like, no. What is, what, like... What sort of uses of the term scientific socialism are you referring to? Like when socialists are talking to other socialists. But I don't know. When I was a newcomer in particular to um, the socialist milieu that we're currently in, it, would, it was one of those terms that would just irritate me when I would hear it invoked. Because if I, were, if I weren't somebody that technically knew what was being referred to, I would be like, that's really weird. That's a really weird targeting term. So just so we know what we're talking about, does someone want to lay out what scientific socialism is, like formally, theoretically? Because you're, you're, you're basically arguing that there is a distinction to be made between scientific and utopian socialism. Those are, that, is a, that is a historical uh, division that has been drawn. And you're saying that that division has been misapplied or we use the term inappropriately or... Or, or perhaps the word scientific as applied to yeah. as applied to to social studies as so, sociology as applied to well, people studies of human behavior. Can you call Marxism and socialism? Can you call that a science? Can you call that scientific? And in in when Marx was writing and around the turn of the century, it was like very that's a very modernist thing, you know, to try to like make everything into a hard science. That's the whole theory of social science. Sure. Yeah, this, this, right, this, right. This is when sociology as a science was being invented. Sure. Right, and I think, I don't know if the question is scientific versus utopian socialism. I think the question is, is can you, can you call it a science? Can you, can you call it science, not, not as in, like, not referring to things that people said in previous texts, but, like, can we talk it, about it to people as a science? Is that, yeah. is, that a, is that a fair thing to do? Does it make sense? Does it to make use sense? Is it accurate? Today? Yeah. Right, because you know, back in the nineteenth century, when the term was used, like, yeah, I, it's the modernist thing. Like, if it's science, then it's good and correct, and obviously, a lot of the science they did then is still hilariously wrong right. now. But like, it, but now we have a very different view of what the word science means. But uh, we still talk about social science, and that's like uncontroversial, relatively. People talk about uh, psychology, sociology, anthropology as sciences, and no one objects. I mean, some people object, but yeah, I think I think what's interesting is scientific to me, and this is just like the way my ear hears it, and it doesn't have to be anyone else's thing. But like when I hear it, I'm imagining like a spreadsheet. Like my brain thinks like, all right, there's numbers, there's things, the numbers flow in a certain way. 
when that's not really what we're talking about at all. Like we're talking about more like dialectics, things that are more qualitative, which is what these social sciences excel at, which is like discussing qualitative phenomenon, occasionally mm-hmm. using Quant- quant- yeah. occasionally using quantitative aspects, right? I mean, right, because you need to. Um, but it's a qualitative phenomenon. Whereas, like, I think in the popular consciousness now, the word science means, like, numbers. Which right. is maybe, I think, probably wrong. Probably an overcorrection. Probably a, a symptom of capital, you know, being like, we need to instrument more shit to do more capital, so let's gonna make this about numbers. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, STEM is a thing, but, like, so science and, like, math are in the same word or in the same yeah. ideological thing, right? Ideological bucket. I think there's just a different understanding now and i've also cringed at the term scientific socialism but it's interesting to explore that and i haven't really thought about it yeah so thank you um both gabe and preston sort of got it what i was trying to go go for um it's kind of like some of the stuff that marxism does that is in analyzing society is sort of more in the scientific camp of quantitative analysis of there are plenty of marxist political economists today that like are very into analyzing data and you know very mathematical etc but then there's also a lot of what we do is more historiographic and kind of interpretive and predictive based on past historical events and that it it, it, sometimes it feels like that is a to to call that scientific is a little feels a little bit in anachronistic like when Marx was doing it the term meant something a little bit different than what it kind of connotes for people now I think to me I think like the at the time there was I think a lot of people still believe this I'm not I'm 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 kind of postmodernist in what I what? feel like <laughs> what post postmodern. You're okay. just telling us this now. <laughs> no, but but like at that time, at Marx's time, there was this idea that you could basically create universal rules and laws for everything, whether that's the properties of atoms and molecules or the properties of human societies, and like laws about oh, this is how a human society develops over time. These are the different stages of development and how capitalism plays out and what it will turn into. And I think that was that was what science meant was like the using the scientific method to determine the rules and laws of nature with human society being one aspect of nature that you would study. And I, I just don't think that we can say we can like confidently claim universal laws and principles of human society. I think we can we can find all kinds of commonalities we can find all kinds of trends and in, in general facets of it, but I don't think it's like, I don't think socialism, Marxism is a science in the same sense that chemistry or physics is because human, like social interactions are just so much more complicated and they change so much and so quickly. But, okay, so I'm going to disagree with that. Um, I think that social interactions are just as complicated as chemical interactions. No, I think they're and more they're, complicated. No, I say they, they are, they are I think you are underestimating how complicated chemical reactions can be. And so what I think there is a, the current idea of hard science is I think, has been elevated out of all proportion with its actual value and, 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 and its actual predictive ability. And it is like, there is this notion that sort of object, there is objective truth that we know through hard science and everything else is- Squishy. Opinion, yeah, opinions, some better supported than others. And I, I don't think that holds up at all. So, like, the 
Contrary to that current notion of science, there is another notion of uh, science that a guy named Thomas Kuhn wrote about in a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is amazing and everyone should read it. And his idea is that science, a science, is, is not a thing that is built over time in a, in a constructed way such that like in a hundred years we will believe, we, we will know, you know, uh, twice as much as we know now and our science will be twice as good or twice as accurate or, or whatever. The way he, looking at the actual history of science, what he determined was there's these paradigms that explain phenomena. So we have a set of phenomena that, that, we're, that we're trying to explain and we come up with a paradigm that explains us, a, a theory that makes this all work out. And, to, and as long as that has predictive power, as long as we can look at that and say, this explains the phenomenon that we see, that, that theory holds and that scientific theory holds. What happens is you have more, like phenomena are constantly accumulating. And so as, as, as more phenomenon accumulate, Eventually, some of those start contradicting the theory. They, they, they start not matching within that old paradigm, and they, that reaches a critical mass in which there is a scientific revolution, and everything changes, and a new paradigm is adopted. So this will be like Ptolemaic uh, astronomy that had, it predicted great until people got good enough telescopes to notice that like orbits weren't perfectly circular which makes no sense in Ptolemaic geometry or uh, Ptolemaic astronomy. Where the Earth uh, is the epicenter of everything. Yeah, yeah, where the, the, like, and there's all these celestial spheres and everything else. And then eventually that accumulated and they came up with a new theory. So all, all of these scientific ideas we have are just theories for explaining phenomena. And that's what Marxism is. Like historical materialism is a theory that explains the world. And we look at history and we say, all history is the history of class conflict. All history is material relations. It is, it is ultimately reducible to the way people reproduce themselves. And that's our, that's our theory, that, that, that is Marxism's theory for the basic mechanism of history. And from that, we draw all of our other conclusions about what is happening in the world today and what we can expect to happen later. And it's not a hard science. It's not, there's not calculations. Like there's a lot of spreadsheets involved sometimes, but it's not like we have I mean, there's a lot of equations in Marx, but actually, I'm trying to read Capital again right now, and you know, there's more equations than I wish there were. But um, <laughs> it's not, it doesn't quite, it, it doesn't look like a hard science because it's not a hard science because hard sciences aren't the only kind of science. I don't think that's a problem. I think we need to sort of bring back the idea that social science is valuable as well and, ten, and can tell us just as much about the world as, as, as hard science. Yeah, I think the idea of Marxism as a science ultimately holds up. The idea of scientific socialism as a historical debate I think is useful. I don't think we should throw the term around because yeah, people don't know what the fuck you're talking about. That's, that's, a, that's an established thing. And we should be aware that it can sound maybe a little culty. Yeah, yes. Or a little, it's, it's just like out of touch something. Yes, yeah. exactly. But, it, but I think we ultimately need to maintain that and it's something that we should explain if, if, if we want to use it, which we should use it whenever it is useful, we should just explain that and not assume that people know what we're talking about because people almost never know what we're talking about. Yeah, no, I think that's, a, that's yeah. you know, you made like a billion good points all of it. Like, I agree, you know, the, the scientific revolutions, I think was a, was a really insightful sort of um, perspective to, to take on, you know, what we traditionally <laughs> see as hard science. <laughs> I think what we've seen, you know, going back to maybe what I said earlier was like since the 19th century was like, we've seen this, yeah, that kind of fetishization of hard science, like this hard science is this become this special thing because capital needs it like capital needs that much more than it needs sociology like it needs it needs people who can do science <laughs> technology engineering and math and not people who can do 
you know, art, sociology, anthropology, and all these other things, at least not nearly to the same extent, right? And so, yeah, you see this sort of elevation, this valorization of hard science at the expense of these softer ones. And yeah, even the fact that I'm using the term hard and soft science, I think comes out of, uh, out of you know, that process. Um, but at the same time, we have to be sensitive to the fact that the times have changed. The, the, the term science has become associated with quote, hard science, and we shouldn't just, yeah, we shouldn't just throw around the word scientific. And also we shouldn't have illusions that like, we, you know, in our activism are doing necessarily scientific processes either, right? Like, you know, we're, we're not doing a control group study. We're not doing A-B testing. We're not doing anything, you know, we're just going out and talking to people and trying to figure out what it is is animating people. But we shouldn't be under the illusion that this is some sort of well-controlled scientific study. Well, like, it's not. It's not hard science. No, no social science is hard science. So of course. Well, it's okay. Not, it doesn't mean it's not scientific. Or it, you it doesn't can, mean it can't be scientific. People, people do try to apply the hard scientific method to social sciences. I mean, like that's people do that all the time. There's tons and tons of academic studies that say, like, okay, I'm, I'm have a hypothesis about society, and I'm going to test it using these methods and these methods of research and polling and interviews and whatever, and then I'm going to come to a conclusion based on that and assess my hypothesis based on the data. But I, I think it's like, it's ultimately, it's, it's never going to reach that level that hard science does, right? Because like you, you can't ever just truly understand people perfectly. You can't ask everyone everything at the same time. You're going to, people, people are going to give you different answers based on how they're feeling at particular moments and you're going to miss the vast majority of people and anything you ever try to engage them about. I guess to me, I, I, al I always cringe at the, like scientific socialism because I, I guess you have a good point that like science doesn't just need to be hard science, but that's how I see it and that's how a lot of people see it and I don't want to, I don't want to feel like that I'm doing something that is like as, as accurate, like the, the kinds of ideas that we formulate are not going to be as accurate as, as like a, a law of physics or chemistry. I mean, those... It's not as controlled. Human behavior, it's not... It cannot be tested and controlled in the same way as a laboratory experiment or something like that. Right. But that's true of any social science. Right, which to me, I think even the term social science is like, to me, I think that's a little bit misleading. I think it's a nice... It's a nice term to put it, but that doesn't mean it's less than, that doesn't mean like social science is worse. I think like, I don't know, I guess I don't know if I, I think of history as a science or... <laughs> That's a big debate. <laughs> or there, there's, there's a lot of historians who take offense to the grouping of, his, of the field of history with social sciences. And they kind of take offense, they really dislike the idea of social science as like the dominant paradigm in, in the humanities. But others, usually younger people, don't have a problem interesting yeah no i i think i disagree with you a little bit and i like it's not so much the unknowability of it as much as just like if you're doing activism to actively try to change these things you don't have the time to do these properly controlled studies like you, you right. you're not going to be doing these things that have quote mathematical rigor or confidence or things that you could like write equations and say we do need to take data and we do need to take data as good as possible that's you know uh, you know as the well best yeah as <laughs> <laughs> we do need to do gooder <laughs> data collection um we do need to collect good data right like uh but we have to recognize that in the in the pace of activism 
I am just uncomfortable using the term scientific because like there's well-established methods in social science to collect good data and we're mm. not doing that we're doing we're doing <laughs> different <laughs> we're doing a different kind of data collection which is still valuable for our purpose but i would not even pretend that that is within right. the realm of what i would call social science yeah we're not even doing like academic marxist economic analysis most yeah. of the time no right? we're doing like we, we read some of it when it's useful but right. that's we we acquire and collect uh empirical data but it is like for the purposes of doing politics. And I don't know. I, I'm sympathetic to the nervousness that people have around the term. I think we should attempt to reclaim. Ultimately, I think we should try to reclaim the idea of Marxism as a science and scientific socialism. Um, I certainly don't think that it should be like front and center in our uh, literature. I don't think we should have a like a magazine called the uh, scientific scientific no, like the like the socialist science monitor or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Wow, oh, man. First, uh, we could have a first party of Marx scientists. <laughs> you should have a parody magazine. Oh man! Oh, definitely. Like that. Oh, that would be yeah. so good. <laughs> Anyways, um, so yeah, so it's like, what, how are we going to arrive at a conclusion here? Because I, I feel like there's kind of a gradient of, of our views. Mm -hmm. I would be for critical support for the term scientific socialism, taking on board that it's a term that needs to be used sensitively. See, I think you, you want to reclaim it. I want to leave it behind. I want the definition of science to change, and I want people to accept the more qualitative understanding of the world and like qualitative holistic understanding of the world as as itself and not and not try to group it in with with hard sciences okay. and I, I to me i've seen no reason to try to reclaim it i say yeah it's not science is this this is the study of humans so that that might actually be a good framework here so that's that's the no critical support for the term i put forward the yes critical support for the term where do uh, where do you two stand I think I would, uh, I, I am going to lend critical support to it. I think Jacob made a very good case that it has um, usefulness, you know, we should be very sensitive, obviously, to when we use it and be sure that we have a plenty of runway to explain when we do use it what the hell we mean. But like, I think it is okay to draw on that, his, on, on that background. Totally understanding that the term science is like, even the term science, remember, it, 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 it evolves historically, right? It's not an ahistorical thing. It's not like a thing that just dropped out and now we use the word science. How we understand science evolved. Uh, and we can even explain that through Marxist uh, analysis. So I think that's really cool and, and brings, a, brings something to the table. So I'm going to critically support it, uh, but it, it's a heavy critical. Um, gosh, this is hard because I kind of agree with both Gabe and Jacob. <laughs> but, um, but you have to pick a side. Which yeah, side and I are you on? <laughs> Which side are I'm you on? I'm on Gabe's side in this one. <laughs> oh, okay. Because, oh, damn it. No. Never split vote. No, never, no, no. no. We, we, need, we, we need a fifth person so this can happen. <laughs> so the reason being is that the heavy caveats that one has to put around it and the sensitivity that one has to bring around it, like I, like I agree, if, it, if it's going to be used, it should be... Uh, used sparingly and um with a lot of explanation but like my feeling is that if we have to do that in general in general usage it should just be retired like maybe for study groups it's fine but like i guess my general sense is like yeah it, the problem the is cringe. 
my general sense is cringe. <laughs> but like the problem is, I, I like I said at the beginning, like I don't have a term that I would that comes ready to hand as it were that would be a, a great substitute for it. But yeah, I, I I just I could do it. I could do without it outside of like study group contexts. Okay. Once again, we have arrived at a tie. Dear um, listener, you are allowed to have your own opinion. Until, until such a time as we can have a tiebreaker. Maybe. Yeah, between this. We, we might have to have a whole episode of tiebreakers at some point. Dogs. Yeah, uh, dogs, scientific socialism. We'll why do to, I always We'll bring keep it telling you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you have the contentious ones. You, you <laughs> find, the hottest topics. You find that, that <laughs> fracture point in our, in our podcast. In our podcast group. Polarizing okay. the podcast. Both times we've been on the same side. This is true. Oh, wow. Yeah. So are we forming factions? <laughs> <laughs> we are the anti-scientific uh, pla- socialism pro-dogs <laughs> faction. Yes. We, are, we are the plaid faction, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yes. we are. Yes. Yes. The, 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 two, the two who uh, like scientific socialism are both wearing plaid, so... Okay. Clearly um, a scientific reduction by okay. Gabe over there. <laughs> so, so my topic is critical support for YouTube. And I, I don't want this to just be about YouTube specifically and their whatever, their sort of policies that they choose, their specific policies that benefit or hurt content creators. Like that's not the debate I'm trying to do. I'm trying to talk about the, the idea that in our, in our capitalist society that there is a privately owned website where anyone can upload anything they want. I mean, just barring stuff that's straight up illegal, but like just sort of a, a, a totally open and free platform for, for videos, which has two, two, two major drawbacks to it. One is that it's privately owned. So that means that the company can do whatever they want. You know, it could be whether that's the policies that YouTube currently has or some other theoretical version of that. And two is that since it's this totally open free speech kind of thing. It means that, uh, you know, the access to equipment and facilities to make it is not universal. It just means that the, the website itself is free, but that doesn't mean that anyone has the ability to do something with it. And even if they have the money to buy a camera and a computer, that doesn't mean that anyone's going to see it. So are you trying to make an argument that YouTube is fundamentally undemocratic? Yeah. I mean, basically, I think that in my, in my opinion, I just, I just think that like, a, a private company holding that kind of that kind of power over our society's uh, information is like fundamentally a bad thing, and it might be better if it didn't exist at all. But I'm not dead set on that. I'm just curious. So the debate you're putting forward is not YouTube privately owned versus uh, YouTube nationalized. The debate you're putting forward is YouTube privately owned versus nothing. Yes. Versus there is no YouTube or anything equivalent to it. Like, I think as Marxists, we would all say, like, nationalize YouTube. I think we'd right. all agree with that. That's that's a boring topic because we'd all agree on it. So, <laughs> so yeah, should it... Hey, I tried unions earlier, <laughs> right? Like... Unions. Critical support for unions. <laughs> right. That fucking guy. <laughs> yeah, should YouTube, should YouTube uh, exist? So does, does YouTube cause more harm than good? Yes. Does it does it move forward or hold back class struggle? Would you also include larger social media, or are you including specifically like the video medium here? I, I guess I think it might be easier maybe, to focus just on maybe, video. Yeah, maybe just to keep it simpler, just thinking of YouTube. Remember when Alex Jones got banned from YouTube? Yeah. What a beautiful time. Yeah, yeah I know. He right? immediately went over to Pornhub. 
Is what? Is she on yes. the Pornhub? That, that, that squares, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does make sense. It's just... What is it? Thought porn? Like what is? What category like, is it? In? No, no, not that's a good question. <laughs> like uh, what's <laughs> large, large white men, large red-faced white men? Fetishes. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, gosh. I think that's a turn is of the frogs. Gay. Is he naked? Um, no, I, I, I fucking hope not. I, <laughs> that's a hard one because. <laughs> Porn guitar, please. <laughs> waka 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 waka. Yeah, because like every other video on YouTube's like a Nazi. Yeah. Like okay, that's 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 not actually true. There's okay. A, there's well, okay. so much stuff on YouTube. Here's what here's what is interesting to me though, and I'm curious. I don't really understand why this happens, but for some reason, the videos on YouTube that get the most views are right wing Nazi yeah. videos. So, that's not because most people no. have those views, but for whatever reason, the, in in that space. They, they flourish. Well, the algorithms will bring you there. Like, it takes, like, I don't know, four clicks, four videos down, and you get some, like, right-wing shithead. The, I, I don't know what it is exactly. Maybe you know more, Jacob, but, like, for some reason, the algorithms, like, love that shit. And they... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a well-established thing that, like, you watch, like, a two-second Joe Rogan clip where he's, inter where he's interviewing someone completely innocuous, and then YouTube is like... We saw that. Would you be interested in fascism? <laughs> um, and it's like, I, I, I think it's, it's not a conspiracy on the part of YouTube. It has to do with their algorithm and the way right-wing content has achieved a critical mass on, like, on the political side of YouTube. So there, there are sections of YouTube that have nothing to do with this whatsoever. And I think it's like, on the one hand, I think it's a coincidence because within any social media thing, with, within any social media forum, like there typically, there typically is a political center of gravity that develops. Like uh, Tumblr was very left-wing. I, I think Twitter is predominantly left-wing. Maybe less so actually, because Twitter is just huge. There's bubbles. Yeah, I there, think there's it's bubbles. Twitter, Twitter like, seems like, to be like very, have, you, have lots of right-wing. Yeah, but like YouTube is predominantly right-wing. Like this, like, like just take Tumblr and YouTube as examples there. Um, and to some extent, that's just a coincidence of like people posting, it achieves a certain critical mass and then it just becomes the algorithm is suggesting it because a shit ton of other people have watched it and therefore more people watch it and it becomes a self-reinforcing thing. The other thing I think is going on is one of the most popular things on YouTube is stand-up comedy. It's a really good medium for that of like short clips of like just like a guy talking. Yeah, someone doing like a five minute set or something. It, it works very well in that forum and a lot of stand-up comedy is really right wing of like it's it's a lot of anti-pc it's a lot of dunking on social justice warriors misogynist um, yes yeah. homophobic exactly that's that definitely comes out of that so it's like even like that's i think the connection even for like joe rogan of like he interviews a lot of comedians and that's that's why i've that's why i've seen a couple of his interviews mostly and then he'll also interview all of these right-wing shitheads and i think he got there via these, you know, dumbass comments. Well, he also got that through UFC, so it, it, I, I, I may be completely off base here, but that's my theory. The other thing, too, is speaking of conspiracy theories, another thing that is rampant on YouTube and that you can, you'll get to real, real quickly if you, for example, type in some like Marxist thing, you will, your feed will uh, pretty quickly devolve into conspiracy theory stuff and there's there's this way in which that sort of genre of YouTube video can be kind of populist. It can be there there are sort of 
quote-unquote leftist uh, versions, like with 9-11 conspiracy theories. Um, and then there's also like right-wing versions, like what was it, the Boston bombing didn't really happen, they were all crisis actors, blah, blah, blah. You could think of the Newtown shooting. No, that, 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 that also, is yeah. Is there for the Boston bombing? Yes. yes. The one that like, everyone up. saw? I stayed up all night, like one night, because this was, I was uh, not very used to this phenomenon. And I was like, wait a second, uh, what's going on with this? And I was like, okay, this is not real. But anyway. <laughs> okay, wow, I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, it's sort of a, pl- a platform that can devolve really easily into somewhat convincing bullshit, um, either left or right. I think too, so, so this is something I've thought about for, for a while and this conversation is totally jogging my memories. There's, I think YouTube has two things that make it, that push it into a more right-wing direction. And one is that it's, you have to create video yourself, which compared to all other kinds of social media is probably the most expensive and time-consuming to create. Right-wingers have more money. I mean, someone like Ben Shapiro, they get funded to do these things. You know, like there's just more money in right-wing groups. Like Craig fun- you and Exactly, yeah. Not every right-winger. I mean, there's obviously tons of, like, shitty people on their mm-hmm. webcams, but there's money there to, to produce that and produce high-quality stuff that just isn't there for left-wing yeah. type yeah. content. Mm-hmm. What is there on the left-wing? There's, like, uh, Means TV and ContraPoints. Yeah, both I mean, of those are could... controversial. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, I mean, there's, there's other people who have, like, lefty podcasts and stuff and, like, record themselves doing that, but, like, they're... I, I, I think I broadly agree with you. That. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing, too, is I think what makes YouTube different than podcasts or Twitter or articles is that if you're going into, like, real information, it means you have to be basically sitting down, fully engaged with something for hours at a time, right? It's like, it's not just like a podcast. You can listen to that while you're doing something else, driving, taking the bus, an article, like, you, you do have to be fully engaged with it, but it's a little bit easier to read an article. Articles tend to be relatively short you can put it down and pick it back up but for whatever reason like with youtube videos people will sit and go and there'll be hours long youtube videos that people will watch especially about like right-wing conspiracy stuff where it'll just be some guy talking to them for hours and hours and they'll just like sit there and watch it and so to do that kind of thing like most regular working class people don't have time to watch some guy talking at them for three hours on the internet you know like you're, you have work, you have kids, you have school, you have something else to do besides doing this. I think it tends, in that respect, it would tend toward a upper middle class sensibility of someone who can just do that. Obviously, there's all sorts of individual circumstances that would be different. And, but if you have time to watch three hours of YouTube regularly, there's, there's a good chance you're, you're of a higher social and economic status. I don't think I agree with that at all. Okay. Cool. Um, people, uh, there's lots of people who use YouTube in the way that other generations or other groups people use TV, where you get home from work, you're dead tired, you just want to sit down and drink a beer and turn your brain off, and YouTube is a more customizable, more stimulating version of TV. And it's it's cheap, all you have to do is have Wi-Fi, you can watch anything in the world you could possibly want to watch. And for some of those people, what they end up watching is 
uh, some guy in a truck ranting about right-wing conspiracy theories or like some dude in a forest in Norway talking about fascism. And for other people, like, I mean, I, I, I watch a lot of YouTube these days. <laughs> I'm with you. And I, okay, an, an, another tie-in is the um, connection to um, okay. gaming videos via uh, Twitch, actually, oh, which is yeah. kind of a different sphere that I, I don't, that, that's another potential right-wing entry. Those are all very good points. Of like right. Gamergate type people. But it's like a lot of the stuff that I like watching on YouTube is like very low production, like, I mean, not actually low production value, but it's, it's very proletarian. It's like, this is totally, someone totally. getting an earwax impaction removed. This is someone like with a hydraulic press just smashing shit yes. after yeah. work. This is the hydraulic press channel? Yeah, that's so yeah, totally. cool. Like, I, I went down a rabbit hole the other night watching a guy unclog drains. Like, it's, it's that's that's very proletarian. No, it's it's a guy who cares about his community wandering around unclogging storm drains. Like it's it's and he doesn't maybe he's an asshole. I have no idea. I haven't watched enough to see whether he says anything political or not. But like, I don't know. I think there's a lot of potential for it. I think it has all the same problems with like right-wing groups can fund their way into having, you know, more and better content. They can do that with anything. They can do that with YouTube. They can do that with printed material. They TV. can with TV, with, uh, with TV, with pot. It's like, that's not limited to YouTube. And I, yeah, I don't know. I think those are, I think those are all, all super solid points. I guess maybe I, the thing about people having time, that is a good point, because lots of people, instead of just watching TV or movies, they watch YouTube videos. But I, I do think producing whatever higher quality production value material, like a tweet, can only be so good of production value. <laughs> like a tweet, it doesn't matter how much money you have, like that doesn't... Says someone who is not very active on Twitter, but okay. Well, okay, but like people have people get these fucking slam dunks all the time on Twitter. AOC. Like even it, like the, just the, typing yeah. 140 words is not characters. Like, characters. Okay, you can do the math. There's too. only so many tweets that can possibly exist. Okay, but but do, do you like do you accept kind of the the overall premise like it's much easier and cheaper to write a tweet than it is to produce a video. It is cheaper to produce a really good tweet than a really good video is what you're saying. Yes. Orders of magnitude. Yeah, but the bar is different. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't think you, you can you can really compare it. Like, a well-funded right-wing operation can flood Twitter just the same as it can flood YouTube. I guess that that is a very good point. And what what I think is is for like a lot of people when you're watching, it's certainly not true for all people. I mean, there's like I watch tons of YouTube videos too that aren't like high production value. It's it's easier to watch a video that's that's clean and mass-produced. At least for a lot of people. It's easier to watch something that's clean and high quality versus something that's like low res and shaky. The videos I was watching the other day of the dude unclogging storm drains had millions of views. I'm not saying they don't. I'm just saying that that gives them, that gives right wing people an advantage because they can produce high quality stuff. Whereas for the most part, left wing people cannot. There's, you don't have that option. You don't have I, that ability. I think more than left wing people, more like, like these working class, low, lower production value videos, even though they may get a million or two million two million views like they're not political right like these are videos that no are, that's no, no that, they're working you know that, I, I, I that's not the point i was making no and i yeah like there's not left-wing content on youtube that is as popular as as the right-wing content that is right. that is a established fact yes but yeah I, I think the point you make about like just like these are just working class or it or at least like very kind of just like life experiences that people are sharing 
hey, what if we, you know, smashed this thing with a hydraulic press? I fucking love the hydraulic press. <laughs> <Hydraulic Castle. laughs> uh, that guy, I just love how they just took up this thing where like, we're just going to smash a little Play-Doh doll at the end of every episode and no <laughs> one can say anything otherwise and they just do that. Cooking YouTube. Cooking YouTube yeah. is great. It's on fire. But do we so need good. YouTube to do that? Like, like, I'm just thinking of all these examples that we're coming up with, you know, and also I would like to say like animal videos, you know, mm-hmm. like there's a lot of good cat videos and a lot of good bird videos, a lot of good cow videos. I like how you're avoiding dogs. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm basically just quoting my favorite animals now. Like, yeah, there's lots of good stuff that is uh, available on video format, but do we need YouTube to do that? or? I can say from a technical level, like you need something engineered for video to do video at scale well. Um, Facebook, you know, all these other, you know, sites can do it, but I think just the, 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 the monument of video content distribution that YouTube has put up is impressive and it's not going to be easily replicated by, even if, you know, Microsoft decided we're going to go kill YouTube now, we're going to make this thing, or even if it would be an enormous effort to, to recreate that infrastructure. Which is why it should be nationalized. Right. Yes. Which, but again, you, no, you but specifically said that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, so it would be better if it now. just didn't exist at all. Because yeah. there, people could post videos on their Twitter or Facebook, but it wouldn't be... It could still go viral. It could still get... the right-wing groups are going to be able to do... Are going to be able to fund their media and get it out to people. And trying to restrict that mechanically is not something we should be fundamentally concerned with. Now, there's a wrinkle I do want to bring in, which is basically the Bo Burnham argument, which is which basically, is. is it okay that we have this media thing that everyone can, everyone can seem to participate in, but like it produces a distorted version, a distorted vision of ourselves right. in so doing. So is social media ultimately bad for us? Right, like at a base, at a more well, base level than like... I feel like that's kind of another question. Yeah. Like yeah. If we want to do critical sport for social media, we can do that at yes. some point. Yeah, okay. Maybe Let's like establish for this episode. question, yeah. social media exists. Right. That is not just talking about YouTube. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I am thinking specifically of his example, uh, his movie, uh, The Eighth Grade. I think we should, if we're going to talk about social media, that seems like one of the biggest... Which like, we're not going to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, not now. <laughs> I'm saying in the future. It yeah. seems like a, a very okay. visceral, like, relevant text from someone right. who has been basically a popular YouTuber. If we're going to talk about do. social media, we should watch that and, and think about, you know... That'll be like a whole hour-long episode. Right. Debating we'll critical support. It's, uh, that movie media. is on my Netflix actually. But um, anyhow, uh, so I think we've been talking about this for a while. I'm going to call the question. I am in favor of critical support for YouTube. I don't think it's fundamentally different than anything else under capitalism. That's uh, how I feel. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Yeah, me too. Yep, I wasn't sure before, but I'm in the okay. same boat. Critical support for YouTube. Feel free to watch whatever you want. Just uh, well, not whatever you want. Yeah, don't don't click on the Jordan Peterson stuff. <laughs> don't be a Nazi. Yeah, don't don't watch the fascist content. And yeah, that don't is... watch any other podcasts on YouTube either. Except like any Bernie Sanders on Joe Rogan. Are, are, oh yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> Wait, Joe there's... Rogan's good. What? No, just Bernie Sanders on Joe Rogan. Oh, Honestly, just that Joe. Joe Rogan, Rogan yeah. is not that bad. Like, he interviews some That's shitty people. That's another topic as well. He, yeah. recently, Ooh, he, he, okay, he re- just recently, he came out and said the only people he was interested in for president are Bernie and Tulsi. Okay. He said everyone else is full of shit. Like, I, I, I think he is confused as fuck and eclectic, but I 
Anyways. Well, <laughs> a, a topic for a future episode. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks again, everyone, for listening. Um, adjust your... Views accordingly. Your views accordingly. <laughs> Bye. 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 Still, still can be.